Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you are enjoying these studies, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Yeshua and the apostles used the story of Noah and the flood as a symbol and a presage, a portent and a pattern of the wrath to come at the end of the age before the coming of the Son of Man, the kingdom, and the final judgment. I've never really given it much thought before, but we should notice that the story of the flood, a universal and divine judgment in which God pours out punishment on all mankind, this once-only story occurs right here, right up in front, in the book of Bereshit, only six chapters into the narrative of the whole Bible. It's a pace setter to show us where this thing is going. It sets the tone for the rest of the book in that we see that, yes, God is patient, merciful, and long-suffering, but ultimately there is a day of reckoning for every human being. King Solomon says that what has been will be again. There is nothing new under the sun. When asked when the kingdom will come, The master pointed back to the story of Noah's flood, and he reminded people that when the flood came, it caught the world unprepared because life just went on as normal, people going about their usual business until the flood came and swept them away. And Peter teaches that the flood corresponds to immersion in that there is a washing away of wickedness beneath the water and life above the water for those who cling to the tzaddik the righteous Noah. So he teaches us that if we hope to survive the coming day of wrath and the judgment to come, we need to cling to Yeshua of Nazareth and that our faith in him, our allegiance to him and our obedience to him is a matter of entering the ark for salvation. So it's in the shadow of this apocalyptic and catastrophic future that the gospel message comes to us. Looking back to the flood, a near-extinction-level event, while anticipating a future extinction-level event, to usher in a new age and a new heaven and a new earth. Therefore, when we read the story of Noah's Ark, we should not read it as a children's story, as it appears in so many children's books because of the animals, nor should we read it as an apologetic for creation science as much of the fundamentalist church does. Rather, we should read it as the ominous warning that it's intended to be, that if not for that rainbow, there we go also. That's how the sages interpret the appearance of the rainbow. It's a sign that the earth merits another extinction-level event. But God is holding the day in abeyance. You see a rainbow, you say, oh, isn't it pretty? Yes, it is pretty. It's beautiful. It's it's the glory of God. It says in Ezekiel and in Revelation that the rainbow appears around the throne, around the, th- the throne of glory as, as, as a radiance of the glory of God. And the sages say, so that's, a, that's why you shouldn't stare at it. You shouldn't stare at it uh, because you shouldn't stare at the glory of God lest your eyes grow dim from staring at the glory of Hashem. I mean, you can stare at it if you want to, but just a warning. Stare at your own risk. Uh, And and the sages also say, the rainbow, it's not really a good sign. Instead, it's a sign that the world teeters on the edge of judgment, that, that the world merits destruction. 
but God has, has, has been merciful again. So you're not supposed to stare at the rainbow lest your eyes grow dim from staring at the glory of the Lord. And, and you're supposed to see the rainbow as an indication that the world merits another extinction level event. And there's a bracha that you say then. You say, Blessed are you, Hashem our God, King of the universe, who remembers the covenant and is faithful to his covenant and keeps his promise. A few weeks ago on Yom Kippur, the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, as we came to the end of the day, we were praying Nila in the synagogue. The last prayer service of the day, the last appeal to heaven for mercy on us, on our community, on our families, and ultimately upon all Israel and, and the whole world. Nila is always the height of the holy day, the most powerful, most moving prayer service in the entire year, in my opinion. But this year, especially so, it seemed like something really special if you're here, in my opinion, it felt like this year we broke through, as it were, and our voices were heard in the presence of the throne of God as if they passed behind the veil by the merit of our Master Yeshua. And Hashem's presence w- was felt so powerful and so strong in that, in that prayer service that one could weep with joy and contrition simultaneously. The Neela service starts before sunset and continues on until after dark. So, I was inside the synagogue for the duration of it, but I later heard from others who were arriving that as the service was starting, the most vivid and beautiful double rainbow was to be seen arcing over the skies of Hudson. With Hashem, things like that are not coincidental, but rather they convey something. And this conveyed to me what I think I already felt in that room in the synagogue. A sense of the presence of God, the glory of God, that we were that close, so close that the glory of the Shekinah was revealed as we prayed. But there's also the other side of the rainbow, in which it's understood as an ill omen, a sign that the world is corrupt and full of violence and merits the same destruction that swept away the generation of Noah, as it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with Hamas. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with Hamas because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Genesis 6, 11-13 The Torah mentions two things here. Sexual deviancy, all flesh had corrupted their way, and violence. The Hebrew word for violence corresponds to the acronym chosen by the terrorist organization Hamas, probably intentionally chosen, to declare to the Jews, we are the violent ones. Before the Shabbat, Shabbat Noach, chief rabbis in Israel issued orders on the basis of Pekuach Nefesh, the principle of saving a life, that override the regular Shabbat prohibitions, 
Ordinarily on Shabbat, the observant Jewish person, Shomer Shabbat person, would not use his phone, would not even touch a phone because it's an item of muksa, something forbidden to use on Shabbat. But on this Shabbat, the chief rabbinate issued an order that under the current situation, where there are rockets being fired several times a day and all manner of dangers that everybody keeps their phones on and ready to use. Likewise, radios and televisions that can broadcast important warnings and national instructions to seek shelter or evacuate or evacuate areas were supposed to be left on through the Shemot. That's because there's ongoing threats from incoming rockets, from terrorists, and, and it's also because the nation is not just dealing with terrorists, but the real potential of this war escalating to involve Lebanon, Hezbollah, Syria, Iran, and perhaps other players. There's also the danger of rioting within Israel and the West Bank. The same instructions uh, issued by the rabbinate warned people not to attend synagogues this Shabbat if they live too far away from a synagogue to quickly access a bomb shelter. The same warning from the rabbinate urged people to carry a weapon, to carry a gun, even though ordinarily you wouldn't carry anything outside of an Eruv, uh, much less a weapon, much less a gun. But on this Shabbat, as a matter of Pekuach Nefesh, the chief rabbinate urged people to stay armed. Meanwhile, the streets of Jerusalem and all the cities in Israel seem like they're in lockdown. My colleague Boaz Michael tells me that over the last many days, nobody was out, that the world feels like it did in the pandemic, because everyone has been called up either for military reserve duty or, or everyone, is, everyone else is attending a funeral or, or sitting shiva or just hunkering in a bomb shelter. As I said to the members last week, the tragedy in Israel should remind us that we are not merely playing religious games or practicing meaningless rote rituals and repetitions here at Beth Emanuel Messianic Synagogue. The prayers, petitions, and blessings that ascend from the community of Yeshua at Beth Emanuel carry enormous weight, enormous potency, and spiritual significance in the yet unfolding drama of redemption, the redemption of Israel, and the ultimate salvation of the whole world. We are trading in the currency of the spiritual world and the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The headlines in the news should remind us this is where the real battle is and that spiritual battles also have a physical side. This is the latest battle in the ongoing war of Gog and Magog. I have no doubt a war that started actually in the days of the apostles when the dragon was thrown down to the earth and having great wrath he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child and vespasian's legions the roman legions invaded the galilee and the legions under titus toppled jerusalem this is all part of the gospel message there is a flood coming the apostles compared themselves to noah they compared yeshua to Noah, a preacher of repentance, warning his generation. But the generation did not listen, did not heed him, until it was too late. 
When Yeshua told people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that message was in the context of an apocalyptic expectation of a coming time of wrath that would entail the end times conflict predicted in the prophets where the nations turn against Israel and make war against the saints. The battle of Gog and Magog, the tribulation, the coming time of wrath that ushers in the coming of the Messiah and the end of the age. All of that is included in the cryptic shorthand gospel message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's all part of the message. It's about the same thing that it's always been about. It's about God's people Israel and the jealousy and hatred of the nations. Look how the world events still revolve around conflict between Isaac and Ishmael, between Jacob and Esau, even between Joseph and his brothers. I'm glad that there are Christian churches that aren't like us here at Beth Emmanuel. I'm glad that there are Christian churches who are able to simplify the gospel message and communicate it to a lost and hurting world. But the truth is that those churches don't know the half of it. Yeshua's message needs to be understood in the light of a coming day of wrath and war and blood and fire and smoke. And it's in preparation for that day that they should escape the day of wrath, that he urged the people to repent before it's too late. Go back and listen to my series titled Satan in Chains or my series on Revelation. Israel and support for the Jewish people is the test of the nations. That's the stumbling stone. That's the stone of testing that the nations must face in these end of days before the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne and all nations are arrayed before him. And he says to them, whoever, whoever has done so to one of these, the least of my brethren has done so also to me. That's how it will be measured. The injustices and murders and atrocities the nations have committed against God's people will be visited back upon them. We know these things. We talk about these things. We expect these things. We understand these things. We see them in the scriptures, even if the rest of the church does not. We can see behind the veil and see the war in heaven. This is what we are here for. It's what we signed up for. It's what the scriptures are all about. This is the road to redemption. Things seem very dark right now, especially in Israel. Things seem very bleak. But I want to remind you that this is not the first time the Jewish people in the land of Israel have faced bleak, dark times. This started back in 1929. Up until that particular Shabbat in 1929 called the Hebron Massacre, the Jewish community in Palestine lived peacefully with their Arab neighbors. Muslims and Jews worshipped at the same or adjacent holy sites. 800 Jews lived in the midst of Hebron's 10,000s of Arabs without a single thought for security. Then, one Friday afternoon, a rumor and a lie spread through the mosques. The lie was that Jews were massacring Muslims. A shooting in Jerusalem outside the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, touched it off, and Palestinian Muslims rose and attacked and massacred the worshippers in Hebron and throughout the land of Israel. It set off three days of violence against the Yeshuv, against the Jewish community in the land of Israel, before the British were able to forcibly restore calm. These tensions then, that began in 1929, 
with an anti-Jewish agenda, escalated until in 1941 the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem traveled to Berlin to meet with Hitler and the Nazi government. He promised to assist Hitler in taking Palestine from the British in exchange for killing the Jewish population. As Rommel's tanks rolled up through Egypt, the Palestinian population began marking Jewish homes to claim which homes they would take when the Nazis came to slaughter the Jews. And the Jewish community in Jerusalem and the land of Israel teetered on the edge of Holocaust. But God stopped the Axis powers in their tracks, and they never made it out of Egypt. Meanwhile, in Europe, a third of the Jewish population of the world went to their deaths in Hitler's death camps. The Nazis did not intend to stop at a third. They intended to take over the world and to exterminate Jews from the planet. But Hashem defeated the Nazi war machine. The troubles of 1947 led up to the War for Independence in May of 1948. The very day the British left and the State of Israel was declared, Arab armies invaded Palestine with the intention of pushing the Jews into the sea. But the Lord delivered them into the hands of his people. The Six-Day War came when the Arab nations again went to war against, against the Jewish people to destroy the state and to push the Jewish people into the sea. But again, the Lord delivered them into the hands of his people. The Yom Kippur War, 50 years ago, when the Arab nations successfully executed a sneak attack on the holy day of Yom Kippur and very nearly defeated the nation, the Lord delivered those nations also into the hands of his people. And we remember the Persian Gulf War when Iraq launched Scud missiles against the state but the Lord sheltered his people. And many other smaller actions and incursions and battles along the way, each of them dark, dark moments in recent history through which God brought about an amazing salvation on behalf of his people. As it says in the Haggadah, in every generation they rise up against us to destroy us. But the Holy One, blessed be he, rescues us from their hand. The current situation in Israel is still very dangerous and the outcome is uncertain. But in the last two weeks, it does seem that the worst possible scenario has been averted. Here's what we could have naturally expected to happen in the wake of this Simchat Torah massacre that actually took place 50 days or 50 years after the Yom Kippur War on the anniversary uh, of this, uh, according to the civil calendar. We would have expected the enemies of Israel to be so emboldened by this success that they take advantage of the situation and they all pile on. So that up in the north, Hezbollah, now sitting on a stockpile of missiles and rockets, which, as gifts from Iran, if utilized, would completely overwhelm Israel's air defenses, that they would have launched these. And behind them, sitting in Syria, Iran has positioned some 100,000 soldiers, and they enjoy the backing of Russia. We would have expected all of this to come raining down on Israel, but something happened. The massacre was so awful that even the media, which usually only criticizes Israel and echoes the world's hatred for the Jewish state, suddenly, unexpectedly, 
switched sides and began to speak of Israel as our ally. And suddenly and unexpectedly, our own administration, through its support and full weight behind Israel, and we moved two aircraft carriers into the Mediterranean to warn off Hezbollah and Syria and Iran, warning them not to try anything. The president said, don't, don't, don't. Thereby averting, so far, what might have been a terrible attack against the state of Israel. We should be incredibly grateful to our government, which has never, ever before publicly intervened like this to avert a war against Israel with such a show of support and military assets. It's truly unprecedented. It's as if some cosmic switch was flipped and suddenly we are on the side of Israel. I've never been enthusiastic about this current administration, nor the one that preceded it. But I was proud of our president, for whom we pray every Shabbat, when, last week, he traveled to Israel and made a clear and certain statement in support of Israel, a clear statement condemning Hamas and condemning terrorism. I did not expect it. I suspect that the United States has bigger concerns, superpower-sized concerns, to try to restore calm and avert the type of chaos and fog of war that could escalate into something far worse, such as an open state of war between Israel and Iran, both of which are nuclear powers. Whatever the reason for American support of Israel, I am grateful for it. So, without getting all political or casting allegiances, let me say something political. There is a day of reckoning coming. President Biden, President Trump, they are both old men, old like me, older than me, who are old enough to remember things like World War II, the Holocaust, the Cold War, the Arafat years, the Camp David Accords, the Oslo Accords, and all those things that have led us up to this point. But there is a generation coming into power, those who are under the age of 45, who have been born, raised, and educated in a world and in a, and in a culture that is inundated and saturated with anti-Israel propaganda that has consistently depicted Israel as an apartheid state, an illegal occupier, as a belligerent aggressor, as the oppressor, as the militarized Zionist entity, the colonial oppressor, and at the same time depicted the Palestinian cause as the side of right and truth and justice and freedom. I've told you before that the secular culture around us has undergone a dramatic inversion of morality. I do not say they are immoral. Instead, the culture today is more concerned with morality and conscience than ever before. But it's an inverted morality, which calls good evil and evil good. One of the fundamental unquestioned social norms and self-evident truths of this new inverted morality is that the state of Israel is the embodiment of evil and must be condemned. This new tenant of morality started spreading in colleges and universities in the 1990s, and while we slept, it went unchecked. It spread among the 
educators and the educated, among the entertainers and the opinion makers of the 2000s. It dominated the media. It became the favorite anti-establishment cause to champion in world politics for young people. It picked up momentum internationally, possessed by the once-thought exorcised ghost of European anti-Semitism, until Zionism is now considered to be a synonym and equivalent term for racism, fascism, colonialism, and apartheid, all rolled into one word. It comes not just from the universities, but also from the United Nations. The United Nations, which, ironically, in 1947 voted to partition Palestine and to create the Jewish state, but since then has condemned Israel, consistently condemned Israel for alleged human rights violations, while belligerently giving a pass to the real violators of human rights, such as Russia, China, Turkey or the corrupt pariah states of North Africa, the Middle East, the Arab nations, or Iran, Pakistan, etc., all of them so eager to condemn the Jews for the sins that they themselves commit. So effective and so pervasive has this re-education of the American population been that a recent poll conducted by National Public Radio revealed that after witnessing the massacre of October 7, 65% of Americans felt that we should support Israel. But those numbers fell off dramatically in individuals under the age of 45, where the majority of millennials and Generation Z felt that America should not offer support for Israel even in the wake of the massacre, which is to say, that a majority of Americans under the age of 45 consider the massacre as justified. If you poke around at all on social media, such as Twitter, which is now called X, or any, any social media forum, that's the overwhelming sentiment you will encounter, unless the algorithm is hiding it from you. I see it from both conservatives and liberals who say things like, well, you have to understand what happened in its historical context. It's a complicated situation. I do understand the historical context. I do understand the historical context. But I seriously doubt that those progressive voices dedicating to defending the actions of terrorists and to condemning the state of Israel do understand the historical context. Yes, they have heard one side of the story badly distorted. They say, it's a complicated situation. Sure, I agree. The relationship between the Jewish people of Israel and the displaced Palestinian population is complicated. Obviously, it's complicated. But there's nothing at all complicated about what happened on October 7. If murder and slaughter like that is too complicated for you to condemn, you need to rethink your life. I don't live in Hudson. I live in St. Paul. We get our Shabbat challah every week from the breadsmith on Snelling and Grand Avenue. Every Friday afternoon, there's a miserable pro-Palestinian protest at the adjacent intersection because the protesters know that the Jews of St. Paul are converging on the bakery to get their challah bread. 
and there are a half dozen, maybe a dozen people holding up end the occupation signs and stop funding Israel and free Palestine and waving Palestinian flags and so forth. But not this last Friday. Last Friday, there was a groundswell of anti-Israel protesters gathered, shouting, waving flags and so forth. And that pales in comparison with the size and scope of protests in other cities worldwide, like the 100,000 who marched in London last weekend in support of Palestine, Hamas, and condemnation of Israel. It's a flood. As the generation of President Biden and President Trump and my generation step aside for younger people to take office and to take power, we will inevitably see a change in policy toward the state of Israel. There is a flood coming. And if that's the case, we better make sure that we are heeding the preacher of repentance and that we get on the ark with him before the storm breaks. The world will not heed him. The world will not listen to us. The scriptures are clear about this. I heard a message from Dalton Thomas, the director of Frontier Alliance International, a missions ministry that we support. And he made a statement just a few weeks ago. He was speaking about the coming war of Gog and Magog. And he said a few compelling things. He said that in his reading of scripture, the thing that will trigger the war of Gog and Magog is a peace accord between Egypt, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. And he spoke soberly about the atrocities that will be visited upon Israel and the Jewish people when that war begins. I don't know how he derived that. But he made this statement weeks before the war. And by the way, the war broke out. The massacre occurred just before Saudi Arabia and Israel were about to normalize relations in the Abraham Accords. Israel and Egypt have been at peace since the Camp David Accords in the Carter administration after the Yom Kippur War. So it seemed prescient to me. But he also pointed out that in the end of days, it's not allegiance to Jesus that will get you martyred, but rather allegiance to the Jewish people, to the land of Israel, and to the Torah. He pointed out that in the Middle East, nobody cares if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're a Christian, but they will kill you if you support Israel. I believe that this is the watershed of the end of days. As I have taught before, it's about how you cast your vote regarding the Jewish people. That's the litmus test between allegiance to the true Messiah and allegiance to the false one. It's pretty well known and been going around the internet again that the Vilna Gaon says that Gog and Magog will begin three hours before the crack of dawn on Hoshana Rabbah. He also says the war will last only three hours. And also Rav Yitzhak Kaduri, who was a secret believer in our master Yeshua, quoted the Vilna Gaon saying that the final battle of Gog and Magog would begin on Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day of Sukkot, in the first year of a Shemitah sabbatical cycle. Well, the massacre in Israel did not happen on Hoshana Rabbah. It happened a day later on Shemini Atzeret, Simchat Torah. But you're always allowed to miss by one. Let me tell you what did happen on Hoshana Rabbah. On Hoshana Rabbah in beautiful historic Hudson, Wisconsin, we had a tremendous Hoshana Rabbah service. 
We got up at the crack of dawn, Hanetz HaChama, to pray a sunrise service, a traditional Hoshana Rabbah service, beseeching God for salvation, praying together in one accord, circling around the bima, sounding the shofar, shaking the lulav, saying, Please God, save now, Hoshana, please God, send salvation now. Later that same day, I had to run out and get some last-minute supplies for Shabbat in Yom Tov. And as I left the synagogue, I could hear Troy's voice starting the prayers for Kabbalat Shabbat that Friday night. Now let me tell you, as I left the synagogue, I was heavy-hearted, supposed to be rejoicing. It's Hoshana Rabbah, Shmini Yetzeret, season of our joy. But I was heavy-hearted because... I was praying as I left the synagogue for Raphael ben Emunah, Rafi, the son of Faith and Jacob, an infant child I was really worried about because I had received word that this child had been brought to Children's Hospital in St. Paul in serious condition. And as I stepped out the synagogue door, with the sound of Kabbalat Shabbat prayers clearly heard through the windows, I was worried about this situation and still praying in my head about this situation. And I stepped out the door into a world of utter peace and calm and surety and beauty and confidence and faith as the golden light of a setting sun shone through a light rainfall and through the the turning leaves of autumn. And an epic double rainbow arced over Hudson dazzling in its vividness. And I felt again as if the presence of God is surely with us and that whatever was about to happen, whatever the news would be, somehow it was going to be all right. I wasn't thinking about Israel. I was thinking, I was thinking about Rafi. But I believed and I knew it's going to be all right because God is with us. Those were my thoughts as I drove away in that light rainfall under the illumination of the rainbow, under the illumination of the rainbow to the east and the light of the setting sun to the west, a sign and a portent, a sign of God's covenant, his faithfulness. He said, I set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. As you know, the life of little Rafi was miraculously restored to him. It was surely a message Surely a sign, surely a portent, surely a comfort, surely a consolation, connecting the prayers of Yom Kippur to the day 
ending Hoshana Rabbah as the day faded into the beginning of Shemini Yetzirah, just hours before the massacre occurred in Israel, as if to say, I am faithful. I have not abandoned my covenant. I have heard your prayers. I am with you. I am with my people. Take on my yoke And learn from it And find rest for your soul 